leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Merry Christmas. Every now and then, does the Lord just overwhelm you? Do you ever have those moments in your life where you just overcome? We were singing together, and I looked around at all of you, and we were singing O Holy Night just a few moments ago, and the Lord just pressed upon my heart um, just with a smile. I heard the Lord say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you preach on the celebration of my birthday. And just overwhelmed with what a privilege it is to not only gather in his house, but to proclaim his name and recognize of all the peoples of the earth that we are so blessed because we don't just call him Jesus. We call him our savior. We call him our redeemer. We call him our friend. And so today we celebrate that wonderful risen Christ, that virgin born King of glory. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Over the past couple of months in preparing um, for this morning and thinking about a Christmas message, I can almost guarantee you that there are uh, if there is any church that is using 1 John 2, 22 and 23 for their Christmas um, passage, I would be incredibly surprised. So as you're turning there, I need you to permit me uh, to do something a little different this morning because I want us to come at this text from a little bit different angle so that you can get the full effect of how important this text is, certainly on Christmas and on every other day of the year. But to be able to do that, we've got to go back. We've got to go way back. In fact, we've got to go back a little over 6,000 years ago because it was a little over 6,000 years ago when everything was formless and void. And the Bible says in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It says that He spoke and light came into existence. We learn in Genesis 1 and 2 that over six consecutive days that God created the world and the solar system and everything that is in them. And in those moments, we learn that, that on that last day of creation before He rested, that He made the pinnacle of His creation and that that pinnacle was man. And we learn that after having created everything, He looked over all of His creation. And what did God think about His creation? He said He saw it, everything, and it was good. But what we learn is that it didn't take very long because Adam and Eve had been given only one specific commandment that they were not supposed to do. And you'll remember that that was that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they couldn't resist the temptation and that the devil came to him that day in the garden. We're told in Genesis chapter 3 that the temptation overcame them because they wanted to be like God. And so we're told that Eve ate first and then took the fruit to her husband. And what we learn after that is immediately that the Bible says they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were in shame. And so they covered themselves and they hid from the Lord. And what we see in Genesis 3, 15 and 16 
is that the Lord comes onto the scene and not only pronounces the curse that would now fall not only on Adam and Eve, but on every single person that would ever live. Everyone who had ever been born, you're not a sinner because you're, you sin. You sin because you were born a sinner. And the Bible says that our DNA, our spiritual DNA, means that for everyone, every grandchild of Adam and Eve, that would be the problem we were born with. But even in Genesis 3, we see this hints of promise that comes when it says that there is going to be one who comes who is going to crush the serpent's head. And then, friends, what we see throughout Scripture is this beautiful outlaying of the story of redemption, of how the Creator God, who made His creation in all of perfection, set out in that moment after the fall to be able to redeem people like you and people like me. And so as the story of the Bible unfolds, you need to understand that it's not just a bunch of random narratives that are placed together. Oh no, friends, it's all part of one great and glorious whole. Because we begin to read in Genesis and we see that that spiritual DNA not only affected people, but it affected people incredibly. Because a few generations removed, we see that the Lord looked out at all of creation and what did He say about it, humanity? He said He looked at them and He recognized that every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. And so the Lord said that He was going to destroy all of humanity. Except for one. One man and his family, a man by the name of Noah, and he told Noah, he said, get to building a boat. Noah said, I've never seen it rain. He said, build a boat. Noah began building this boat. And over the course of the years, he prepared it. And you remember the story well because the waters fell. They came up and they came down and it flooded the entire earth. But what we know is that two by two and seven by seven, the animals had boarded the ark and Noah and his family were rescued. And it was from that one family that the rest of the earth was then populated. But what we know is, is that Noah and his family were not enough to redeem all of humanity because even though Noah was a righteous man, he was still a sinner. And so as the population began to grow, God continued in His plan of redemption and recognized that there needed to be a people, a people from which all nations would see God's shining light and would shine as a light into all the world. And so He started this redemption process in Genesis chapter 12. And you can remember the story well. We're going to study it together next year because He comes to a man by the name of Abram in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, I know that you're old. I know that your wife is past childbearing age, but I want you to follow, some, follow me because I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to give you a land and I am going to use you to be a light unto all of the world. And the story of the redemption continues because you can remember not only do we have the story of Abraham and the story of Isaac and the story of Jacob and then Jacob's 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. But as we continue on in Genesis, we see that God's people ended up in a serious problem. And we find them in Egypt in a horrible situation of slavery. And it looked like all would be lost and this nation that was supposed to be a light for the world was going to be snuffed out. But then you can remember, an edict came and it was to kill all of the male children. But there was a brave young woman who took an, a little thatch basket and she put it in the Nile River. And the princess of Egypt found herself down there and rescued this little baby. This, lady, this little baby would grow up as the prince of Egypt. You know him as Moses. Moses would be the called deliverer, the one who would come and bring the people out of slavery as he would declare unto Pharaoh, what church? Let my people go. We see that in Moses' life, the law is brought about and God creates a covenant with His people. They are released 
from Egyptian bondage and they begin this march that shouldn't have taken any time but took 40 years of wandering till eventually Joshua took them into the place that was called the promised land. And as they began to populate the promised land and as they were supposed to live under God's covenant, you would think that all would have been wonderful from this point in the story on out. But the Israelites have much the same story that you have and I have and they had a trouble with faithfulness. And so among this land, a period of judges grew up and the judges would rescue them and they would repeat the same pattern over and over again. They would fall into sin and then the Lord would send consequences and then they would call out to the Lord and the Lord would send a judge. And that's how it existed until finally Israel began to beg for something, but it wasn't something that they should have been praying for. Because they bowed before the Lord and what did they ask for? They said, we want to be like every other nation in the world. All we want is a king to be over us. And God told them, I'm your king. But they demanded a king. And so we saw, the. you remember, Saul's dynasty emerge from that. And we see the kings begin to flesh out in the Old Testament. It was Saul who obviously did not follow after the Lord's command until eventually we have the quintessential king of the whole Old Testament that rises to power, a man by the name of David, the same man who would be the one who would be the messianic in the messianic line of Jesus. But throughout these kings, if you read the story of Chronicles and Kings and Samuels, what do you find out? You find that the, overall these men did not lead in righteousness. In fact, they led in rebellion. So much so that this kingdom that the Lord had blessed with, what happened to it? It divided into two different kingdoms and Israel became the northern kingdom and Judah became the southern kingdom. And sin continued to perpetuate in these kingdoms till eventually Assyrian conquerors came in and they took over Israel. Around a hundred years later, Judah was taken over by the Babylonians and Israel was laid in waste. And it wasn't until the times of Ezra and Nehemiah that we find out that they were granted access to be able to not only come back to their homeland, but to rebuild and to rebuild the temple itself. And it's during much of this time that we heard so much of the prophets and many of these prophets that emerged, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they promised that there would be a redeemer, that there would be one who would come born of a virgin, this Emmanuel, God with us. But as they continued to live in the land, what we found out is even after they came back, their priorities were skewed. They didn't look to the Lord. And Israel fell on times that they had never fallen on before. They fell on something called 400 years of silence. There was not a prophetic voice that rung out among the people. And yet when the voice rang out, the voice rang out loud and clear because the voice came from the angel. And that voice did not visit the entire nation of Israel, that voice visited a 15-year-old virgin girl. And he announced to her, I want you to know that you are going to be with child for the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you are going to bear the Son of God. His name will be Emmanuel or God with us. You are to call him Jesus. And so not only to Mary, but to Joseph, this angel had come and announced what would be this promised Messiah. But if you remember your history well, you'll remember that Israel at this point, they weren't under Egyptian domination, they were under Roman domination. And so not just for 400 years, but for even longer than that, they had been looking for a Redeemer, looking for a Messiah, looking for a Deliverer, but they wanted one that would be in the spirit of Moses who would get them out of slavery, who would get them out of this domination so that they could stand on their own and have their own kingdom and their own power. But as you well know, that is not the type of kingdom 
that the Messiah came to establish. But Jesus was born that day in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, worshipped by shepherds, visited by angels, wise men sent, and yet obscurely in a little town, in a feeding trough, it seemed that the world did not know that the culmination of all of history was found that day in Bethlehem. For 30 years, Jesus lived behind the scenes. He was a carpenter assistant to his daddy. Jesus knew who he was. The father knew who he was. But it took three decades for a public announcement to, came, to come. He had a first cousin by the name of John the Baptist who heralded his coming, who told the world that his sandals, that John was not even able to untie, but when he saw Jesus, he made this declaration, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus began to minister, he was doubted and he was hated, but for three years he taught, he healed, he performed miracles, and he chose 12 men who we call the apostles or the disciples. I want to remind you about one of those men probably one that most would argue was the one that was the very closest to Jesus. He was one of those old sons of thunder. His name was John. He was the very man who not only wrote the Gospel of John, but he would be the one that would sit closest to Jesus. He would be the one who was referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, it was John. He was the one that was standing there at the cross when Jesus in his last breath looked at his own mama and told Mary, he will be your son, and you will be his mother. It is one of the closest bonds that we see that Jesus had with an earthly relationship. And so John, having not only witnessed the ministry of Jesus and this friendship with Jesus, and having not only been there in the moments, not only when Jesus was killed, but having seen that empty tomb, it was John. Yes, the same one that wrote the gospel and the same one that would eventually be on Patmos and write that wonderful revelation. It was that same John who, when he heard a heresy come up, he made sure that he addressed it. Because you were talking about the creator of the world. You're talking about the Messiah. You're talking about my best friend. You're talking about the very one who now I look after his mama in his absence. And I want to tell you, if you get his identity wrong, you get everything wrong. And so when we open up to the book of First John, we see that there's a group of people who would deny everything about everything that I just told you because they began to have this idea that somehow Jesus did not exist in human form. They denied his humanity. They died, denied the body of Jesus. They denied the incarnation. And in this early form of what's called Gnosticism, they separated the spirit from the flesh. And so John pulls no punches and he calls them this word. Antichrist. Now, we need to be sure before I read these short two verses what he's talking about. Because in Scripture, we see the word Antichrist come up over and over again. But for the simplest explanation that I can give, I want you to think about Antichrist as a capital A Antichrist and a lowercase a Antichrist. The capital A Antichrist is when you think of the Antichrist the one who is going to come at the end times. We are looking for that singular individual, right? But when we think of the lowercase antichrist, the word anti means what? Against. The word Christ means Christ. 
So anyone who is against Christ is against the identity of Christ, who denies the person of Christ, falls under the category of being an antichrist. And John pulls no punches, and on Christmas, I believe we can't pull any punches. This is not a time for us to look back and say, isn't the mistletoe beautiful? Don't we love to look at all the trees? Aren't the holiday celebrations and all the songs on the radio warming to my heart? No, friends. The greatest thing that we can be sure of today is that we declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, born of a virgin, 33 years of sinless perfection, crucified on Calvary's cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, risen on Easter Sunday morning, and that if you repent of your sins, that you can come to Him and be saved. So I want you to see today in 1 John chapter 2 just how important the identity of that baby born in Bethlehem truly is. Would you stand with me? First John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Lord, may we see today that anyone who denies you, Jesus is the Christ, is a liar. That they have no relationship with you. Lord, we have no claim on Christmas without you. All of the traditions, they're meaningless. All of the food around the table is a waste. All of the garland and all of the tinsel and all of the ornaments, all of the traditions. Oh God, it's empty if we're hell-bound. So Lord God, we come before you today and we thank you that you are the incarnate word, the divine logos. That Lord, as we look over the history of humanity and over all of the universe, that Lord, we declare today that our Redeemer lives. That you look down through the corridors of time and that you saw our helpless estate and God, you came to us so that, Lord, we may have life and that we may have it more abundantly. So, Lord Jesus, as we come to you today, as we think about your birthday, Lord, we may we recognize that we are the one that received the gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. A right view of the work person and work and message of Jesus is the essential mark of all saving faith. So when John writes this, he's wanting everyone to understand. In fact, it, it, as we jump right in, and, and that's the title of the text today, who is the liar? Now, in the age in which we live in, obviously there are a lot of people that especially on this weekend, they acknowledge Jesus that they acknowledge his person. Some people will give lip service to Christ. Some people will talk about, we'll see bumper stickers that tis the reason for the season. But I'm coming before you today because I want us to truly understand that the person and identity of Christ separates all people. We are not divided by political party. We are not divided by race. We are not divided by class. We are not divided by geography. That the greatest division among people comes by the identity of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, who is the liar? 
We need to understand that when we come to Christmas, that there shouldn't be a sentiment in which we recognize that the most important thing is for us to be open-minded, that the most important thing for is for us to be accepting, that the most important thing is for us to be tolerant. The most important thing is that Jesus' name would be exalted. And you cannot exalt His name if you get His identity wrong. And so as John writes this powerful letter, he comes before to make this explanation that there is no hope for someone who professes of Jesus of his own fancy or his own design, that Christ must be Christ as revealed in Scripture. You don't get to design your own Savior. And this faith requires obedience to His requirements. Not just intellectual assent, but submission to Christ alone. So to deny Jesus then, let's talk about how important a message this is this morning. So many people claim to know God. People claim to worship God. People claim to have religion. They claim to have faith. They claim to have their own brand or their own mix of faith. Or they believe things and, and they'll tell you that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe it. Or they'll tell you that it is absolutely okay to mix different elements of different religions so long as you're genuine or so long as you're sincere. But this text calls us out this morning because what it says is, is that if you get the identity of Jesus wrong, you can't have God. You cannot have a claim on the Creator. You cannot have a claim on a relationship outside of who the person of Jesus Christ is. So what is the offense about getting the identity of Jesus wrong? Here's the offense. You called God a liar. This is my Son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. God will not tolerate being blasphemed. He will not allow you to blaspheme Himself, and He will not allow you to blaspheme the Son. Years ago, a very wealthy man lost his wife. After having lost his wife, he and his one son began to embark on a project together of collecting priceless works of art. And they traveled the globe together looking for the rarest and most expensive pieces. It is said that he had one of the finest private collections of art in all of the world. He had Picassos, he had Monets, he had Van Goghs, and they decorated his home. His son, as he grew, became a passionate art collector himself, traveling the world and brokering deals for some of the finest works of art. Until one day, a knock at the door came that would change their lives forever because he found out in that moment that he, the son had been drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. The young man went to Vietnam, and the father received a message while his son was over there that no parent could imagine hearing that his son was MIA. He waited for weeks, hoping that there would be better news, hopeful news, but that news never came until one day that they confirmed that his son had died rescuing another fellow soldier and trying to carry him out to a medic. The father was absolutely devastated. The days drug on to weeks and months and he didn't know how he could live. He couldn't even stand to look at the artwork in his house anymore because it represented everything that he and his son had loved together. And then one day, 
around Christmas time, he received a knock on the door. And he went to the door. And there was a young man standing at the door and he was holding a large package. And he asked if he could come in that he had information about his son that he would like to share. So the old man invited him in and said, yes, please come and sit down. This young man, this young soldier began to weep. He could hardly talk through his tears and finally he composed himself. He said, I want you to know I'm the young man who your son was carrying to the medic when he was shot and killed. I was the last one to see your son alive. And if it hadn't been for him, I'd be dead. He said, I found out that you and your son were collectors of art. So it took me a long time to bring this to you because I'm no great artist. But over the recent months, I've done the very best I could to paint a portrait of your son that I think's in the greatest likeness in the way that I saw him. And the father opened up this package and he looked down and he saw this incredible likeness of his son. And he began to weep and he thanked this young soldier. And he said, I tell you what I'm going to do, I'm going to hang this right over my fireplace mantle. And he did exactly that and he put the picture of his son out of all the artwork in the house, it was the favorite, his favorite one that he ever owned. And he would look at this picture of the son. It didn't take very long. This father got a diagnosis of his own that there wouldn't be much longer to live. So he had gone to have all of his affairs taken care of, what to do with his art, how it was to be auctioned. And so eventually the old man passed away. And you can imagine so many art collectors, they were foaming at the mouth. They couldn't wait to get to this auction. They knew that the finest pieces in the world were there and they couldn't wait to auction and they couldn't wait to bid. And so they all lined up on the lawn of this home. And so the auctioneer stepped up and he hit his gavel and he said, it's time to get started. The first piece of art is this picture of his son. And he held up this picture of his son for everyone there to see and, and, and men in the back saying, let's get this over with. Let's get on with it. Th th there's better pieces of art. And the auctioneer said the instructions he left were that no piece was to be sold until this one was auctioned first. So he waited on a bid. He said, would someone bid $10? No one bid a thing for the picture of the sun. And as this was taking place, an old man who was the gardener came around the side of the house. And as he came around the side of the house, he looked up. And he saw the picture of that young man, the young man that he had known his whole life. And the gardener raised his hand and he said, if nobody else wants it, I'd like to have it. But all I've got is $10. So the auctioneer said, $10. Going once, going twice, sold. The gardener came up to get the picture of the son. And the auctioneer tapped the gavel and he said, this auction is closed. And everyone was aghast. He said, they said, no, wait, we, we want to get to the Picassos. We want the Monets. We want the Van Goghs. We want the Rembrandts. We want those. And he said, the father left specific instructions. And it simply said, whoever takes the son gets it all. What I want you to know, church, is that when Jesus Christ was sent from heaven, 
It was God's message to all of us. And it communicated that whoever takes the Son gets the Father. But the only way to get the Father is to take the Son. You can't claim the benefits of God. You can't claim the forgiveness of God. You can't claim the blessings or the hope of God outside of the Son. And yet we live in a world today in which the Gospel has been so clouded by heresy, so clouded by bad doctrine that we need to come back on Christmas and understand that the identity of Jesus is not a suggestion that the identity of Jesus is not just a sentimental hope that the identity of Jesus is everything at Christmas we are reminded how many choices there are my wife gave me a list of several things that she would like for Christmas as did my kids I have become an online shopper And so I'm on the internet looking for these items. And I am blown away. If, if Christmas had been a couple of days ago, I could tell you what some of those items were, but I can't, can't tell you right now. But at one point, I pulled up and typed in what I was looking for, 40,000 different choices for this item. 40,000. This should have taken five seconds but it couldn't because I had to start scrolling. And I looked down and 42 minutes later, I'm looking at a $17 item that there's 40,000 choices for. And that's the world we live in. But somehow we've now brought that and we've placed it into religion. That you, you, everybody wants to have all the choices in the world, to have it at your fingertips, that you want something that is usable, that comes with a five-star review, that you can have when you want it. You want a two-day delivery. You want it to be bargain priced, and you don't want it to cost you much at all. And friends, when we try to place those qualifications on what it is, our religion, then we know, friends, that we are playing a dangerous game. I came across several quotes that that I thought were important that I wanted to share with you. A man by the name of Rabbi Shmuley Boteach said this, I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. I'm here today to tell you that my faith in Jesus Christ is better than every other faith. I'm here to tell you that my Savior is better than any other God. I'm here to tell you that the God I know is the only true God. I'm here to tell you that there's no other way that you can be saved. Gandhi, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. I'm here to tell you that there is no religion that is equal to biblical Christianity. They all fall dim. And the reason is they all call on you to worship a false God and they all will lead you to a false profession and they will all bring you to a real hell. That's my message to you on Christmas. Friends, they're not all equal. You can't have it any way you want. Friends, religion, is this is not Burger King. You can't have it your way. But what you can have is the only way that God prescribed. Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths that will lead you to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Salvation comes under no other name than the name of Jesus. If you get the identity of Jesus wrong, you've got it all wrong. Your life's wrong. Your soul's wrong. Your eternity will be wrong. There is a right and there is a wrong. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads in death. Willie Nelson, that great theologian, this is what he said. He believes in reincarnation. He said, I'll be back in a minute. No, we won't. No, we won't. Because if God is not a liar, and friends, He is not, there is only two destinations for your eternal soul. Heaven and hell. And if you desire heaven, then Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is the only hope. Who is the liar? It is the man that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father, and he denies the Son. And no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Without Jesus, the sentimental traditions are as good as it will ever get. He's not an addition to the holiday spirit. He's not an add-on to an otherwise full life. He is the Lord of glory, the virgin-born King of the universe. He is your only hope and the only salvation. And you need to call to Him and cling to Him because friends, both on Christmas and the rest of the 365 days of the year, He is your only hope. He is my Savior, and He is my friend. Some of you may leave today, and you're going to say, that was an aggressive Christmas message. That was an aggressive Christmas message. It was an aggressive Christmas message. And here's why. I thought about old John as he penned this letter. And I thought about him because this is what I thought. The man who leaned up against Jesus during the Last Supper the one who walked with him, who stood on the boat and saw him walk on water, the one who was there when he fed the 5,000 and healed the lame. I can't imagine how furious he must have been to hear that there would be people who would deny the person and the work of his best friend in the whole world and the one who had saved his soul. Sometimes on Christmas, we need to have a little grip about ourselves and recognize that Christmas does not belong to the world. Christmas belongs to Christians. And the reason it belongs to Christians is because we're the only ones who can claim the only Savior, the only God, whose name is Jesus Christ. All glory and honor be to Him and to Him alone. leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known.